Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. We're going to be speaking to a friend and colleague of, of Ahmed and I, Jason Hahn. Jason is the founder of the Law Offices of Jason Hahn, and he's had an interesting legal and non-legal career. He started off actually working, not as an attorney, but working for the Sun-Times as a photojournalist before he did eventually become a lawyer. After he got laid off by the Sun-Times, he received his law degree from the University of Illinois College of Law in Champaign-Urbana. Prior to becoming an employment attorney, Jason also had a prior legal career. He worked as a prosecutor and assistant state's attorney in both the St. Clair and McLean County state's attorney's offices. Jason now has his own practice and represents clients in discrimination and retaliation matters. And within that, he also has an interesting practice niche that we're going to come back and talk about on a different episode where he represents a lot of state and federal workers. Jason, welcome. Hi, Max. Thank you. Honor to be here. Well, thanks for coming on, Jason. So the first thing we kind of wanted to talk about is a little bit more timely. In March, there was a shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, in which the shooter had targeted the Asian community and four of the eight victims, unfortunately, were Korean Americans. So we wanted to bring you on to talk about this, partially because or mostly because of the intersection between hate crimes and employment law. And we didn't mention this before, but you're also on the board of directors for the Korean American Bar Association. So maybe initially, just how has this kind of impacted the Korean community? Thanks for asking, Ahmad. The day we're recording this is about five days after, well, it's exactly five days after that murderous rampage down in Atlanta that killed eight people, six Asian women, I believe, and four of the six were Korean American women. So the way it's impacted Korean American community and, and really the entire Asian American Pacific Islander community, the AAPI community, so many, so many of us are asking, why hasn't this already been charged by the prosecutors as a hate crime? And everyone is saying it's obviously a hate crime because you know seven out of the eight victims are Asian. What else could it possibly be? That's and so so many Asian Americans are feeling that this reflects again America's disregard for its racist history when it comes to dealing with Asian Americans and really all people of color and just disregarding the sensitivities of the Asian community. They just don't feel seen. Yeah, I mean, this comes on the heels of a lot of other stuff that's going on. I mean, even within a microcosm upon the meta problems that happen there, the you know accessibility to be able to get a gun so quickly, everything else that's going on. But I want to break up what you said a little bit. So I know, obviously, you worked as an ASA or a state's attorney. What is a hate crime? A hate crime is essentially any crime with an extra element, an extra gloss that you have to prove as a prosecutor. And that is what motivated the act is, is discriminatory intent. It's what motivated the, whether, whether it's theft, damage to property, physical bodily harm, murder is because the victim is, in this case, it would be Asian or Black or Jewish or any other, you know, as, as we know so well, protected class. Are there different laws at the state and federal level for hate crime? So, for example, in Georgia, would there be a federal law the prosecutors could bring or would there be a state equivalent or how would that theoretically function? That's an interesting question. I, one, unfortunately, I, I don't have much expertise on. All I know about uh, federal 
prosecution. And again, as an ASA, that's an assistant state's attorney, which is the name of prosecutors here in Illinois. I just know for federal crimes, there has to be a federal jurisdictional hook. So had the crimes occurred on federal property, for example, like what happened with Emmett Till, which was, which was why Emmett Till's defendants were able to be prosecuted twice. First by, of course, uh, the state, and they were acquitted, but then federal prosecutors got to go after them. So either it occurred on federal land or a law that was violated might be federal law. You know, murder tends to be what we call common law crimes, which are laws that are not created by statute, not created by a legislature, but laws that we just kind of inherited from, from England. And it being a, crom- a common law crime, it's probably just going to be prosecuted by uh, the district attorneys down in Georgia. As an assistant state's attorney, this is sort of diving a little bit deeper into that. I know you're now an employment lawyer, but when you, here's why I'm, I'm having a hard time getting this out. So a, a lot of the attention that I've seen covered this, this horrific crime has justifiably also focused on the language that was used to describe the crime in its immediate aftermath. And I think that also that's instructive of how we as a society look at crimes that that seem to have a racially motivated component. So for example, I don't remember if it was the chief of police, but some sort of a ranking officer down there basically described the murderer as having had a bad day and sort of, at least from the outside, what it seemed to me was going out of his way to avoid allowing this to be treated as a hate crime. Does, Does a law enforcement apparatus like that, where there may be a deliberate desire to minimize the racial element of this law have an impact on whether the prosecution or a prosecutor's office is able to pursue this as a hate crime? In other words, are they going to be able to do that in the face of perhaps a police community in in this area that is loath to treat this as as maybe we all think it should be as a hate crime? Does that make sense? The only thing I would add to that too is I think it's more than just a police chief. The media coverage has also been, yeah. That's a good point. The American media versus the Korean media is covering this completely differently. Yeah. Yes, I would say that the way the media covers it, the way the media covers the, the police chief uh, in that area, in that county just outside of Atlanta, it does have an effect on, well, I, I guess I would say every prosecutor has a goal of meeting that, that burden of beyond a reasonable doubt. Every element of the crime has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And I would hope that if a prosecutor knows that there's just no chance of being able to convince a jury of 12 people, each and every single element of a particular crime, that they would they would exercise some restraint, be judicious about what they charge and choose not to charge. So, but the problem I suppose is if, if the chief of the police is speaking to the media and already kind of infecting the public's consciousness of, of what this defendant, you know, what this defendant was thinking when he committed the crimes, you kind of taint the potential jury pool. So I could see, I could see a prosecutor, a district attorney in that jurisdiction thinking, well, already, you know, the, the chief of police and so many other people are echoing the chief of police's thoughts that this guy just seemed to have a bad day. Or I think I've even heard that he was addicted. He had a sex addiction. His church has already released a statement saying that he had gone to rehab for sex addiction. And he's claiming that that is the reason why he, he murdered these innocent people. It does make it tougher. And the only, it, I, I wanted to bring up this, this hate crime that just occurred. And I would call it a hate crime. 
because I think there is a connection to employment law. Not just Asian people, but so many other people, so many of our allies are thinking, why hasn't this been charged as a hate crime? We just went through that. And I think if, if people can understand, you know, I just want to be, I'm not being, I'm not necessarily, I don't want to be necessarily fair to the chief of police, but he does have a point that it is difficult to prove the intent of this murderous defendant. It's, it's difficult to prove what exactly was this guy thinking. And he will, the defendant will win on the charge of a hate crime if he can convince the jury that what motivated him was something other than hatred, discrimination against Asians. So if he can't convince the jurors that, you know, the reason he killed these women is because of his sex addiction, alleged sex addiction, he'll win. And I think this ties into employment law and that we as employment attorneys representing plaintiffs, we have to do the same thing. We have to prove that it was the discriminatory intent behind the bad actor, typically a supervisor or HR professional that works with the employer, that it was discriminatory intent that motivated them to do what they did, fail to promote, terminate, you know, suspend our clients. It was because of our clients because they're Asian, because they're Black, because they have a disability, because of their age, because of these protected classes. And what I tell potential clients is the defendant is, a, is always going to say usually three things. Number one, we didn't treat you unfairly. So if you, if you think of the definition of discrimination as unfair treatment, they're going to say, no, we, we treated you fairly. The fact is, you're a terrible employee. So number one, no unfair treatment, no discrimination. Number two, even if there was unfair treatment, it wasn't because of the reason that you claim it is. It's not because of your race. It's not because of your age, because you're disabled, because of your religion. It's because we're an office full of White Sox fans and you're a Cubs fan. You know, we love the Green Bay Packers and you love the Bears. Or even I've had potential clients call me and say, yeah, they fired me and then they immediately replaced me with the boss's son who just graduated out of high school, doesn't even have you know, a bachelor's degree, no experience. And I, and I say, well, you know, nepotism, it's unfair, but it's legal. So that's, you know, if you can think of it, sort of that intellectual exercise of what, what do we need to do to prove that this, is, that this was a hate crime? What do we need to prove that discrimination in employment took place? And I, I think I've only mentioned two things. There's a third thing, but I, it slips my mind. But those two things for sure, they always say, no, we, we treated you fairly. And number two, even if we did treat you unfairly, it was for a legal, not illegal reason. Or you were, or you did say all three. And then the, the first was just, you were really bad at your job, basically. Yes, which, yes. So maybe I, I did. So <laughs> sorry about that. I'm a lawyer, not a. No, you're good. I'm no, just saying good. you caught all three. You caught all three. But I think. I mean, I think that's something we all struggle with, right? I mean, so in the interest of disclosure to everybody, Jason Met and I all together serve on the legislative committee for Neela, Illinois, and we're always working to fight back against laws that we think are encroaching on workers' rights and always to pursue, you know, laws that are going to make the workplace better for people. And I think one of the things we grapple with is that very topic, improving intent and, and what that looks like under law, because... I think we all tell clients that that listen, it's possible for them to discriminate you, but they're not gonna they're not gonna say it out loud when they do it. So we're gonna like everything you could be saying is true, and we may still lose if we're not able to find a smoking gun that really ties it all back together. And I mean, I think in an, tying it back to what you were talking about, Jason, in a criminal context, right? You're proving beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a higher burden than as civil attorneys we have to prove, which is by a preponderance of the evidence. So in a hate crime context too, I think it it's it's even harder.
Well, I don't know about your practices, but I don't think I've ever seen an email where someone put in writing, we're firing this person because they're Korean or because of their age. And so walk us through it. How do you prove an employment discrimination case then? Great question. So judges, the case law, they tend to look at evidence in two categories. That's direct evidence and circumstantial. And Amit, what you just mentioned, an email like that, you know, <laughs> I actually have seen text messages or social media messages that are, that are akin to that. It's rare. I think most people are sophisticated enough to know not to send a text where it says, boy, I, I really don't like Asians. And that's why I'm firing this guy. But you have direct evidence, which is a text, an email, video, something that, that can actually give us a snapshot of the bad actor's intent at the moment they were making that decision to terminate, not promote, you know, demote the, the plaintiff. So that's one form of evidence. The second is circumstantial and circumstantial is, well, it's, it's kind of what you think. I think, I think most people heard the term circumstantial evidence. It's in an employment context, you know, you were terminated and then you were replaced and you're older than 40 let's say you're close to retirement and you were replaced with someone who is much younger, who's in their twenties, or you were terminated, you're black, you were immediately replaced with someone who is not black. That is an obvious piece of circumstantial evidence because especially, you know, especially if you were performing well, if you can prove that your performance is not an issue and that you had every right to continue working or even be promoted, but for some arbitrary, it seems arbitrary, but if you, Pair the arbitrariness of the adverse employment action, the termination, with suddenly you're replaced with someone who is not in your protected class. That's that's pretty good circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Um, Even just going back to your nepotism example, if you are a 50-year-old employee who's separated and then replaced by the son who's 19 and you know in college still, that might not be you know nepotism may not be the claim, but maybe there's age discrimination or something else. Exactly. Although I think, I think the claim of nepotism, I would, I would be a little wary of taking on that case just because, I mean, of course, uh, someone's going to treat their son better than they would treat you, you know, and that's just, unfortunately, that's, that's legal. So, you know, maybe a good inverse question that some of my, my friends and family in the Asian American community would ask me is, well, what, what type of evidence would this prosecutor need to have to prove this defendant acted with that that intent so that we can we can charge him with hate crime and i would say well yeah if he if he released a text or or if they searched his e his uh, email you know they got a warrant went through his email looked through his looked through his computer and they saw that he was a member of a white supremacy group and he written journal entries emails to people his fellow white supremacy friends i hate asians i hate uh, i hate minorities in general then yes I, I would say that's that's pretty good evidence but so far what we have is, I believe, is evidence that he may have a sex addiction or believes he has a sex addiction. And that just makes proving that he did it because these women are Asian, that just makes it very hard. So from a prosecutional standpoint, I guess what would, the one benefit I can see of charging him with a hate crime is the optics of the message it's kind of sending to other folks across the country. But what's more of a pragmatic difference between a hate crime charge and conviction versus a murder? I suppose pragmatically, well, he would get an extra sentence, but there is, there is not it, pragmatic. I, I suppose I want to clarify the definition of pragmatic in terms of like how, how the defendant would be affected. I don't think there would be too much 
too much of a, a difference between how he is affected because he would still be serving probably a life sentence. They, they might even go for the death penalty here with this guy, even without the hate crime. And that is dead, right? With or without the hate crime. In terms of what it does to, to society, the message it sends is, you know, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, we see you. We recognize your pain, you're American citizens, we care about you. And I think there is some importance in that. And I think going back to the, you know, the optic conversation, it's not just in terms of violence, it's just general comments them either by themselves can be problematic for obvious reasons. I mean, and it's not just like, not to get too into the weeds about sports, but Jeremy Lin recently had a post about how he's a basketball player, he's playing right now, and people are using the term coronavirus in a, you know, in a disparaging way towards him. And when you have violence against the Asian community right now, you know, stuff like that matters and sending a message matters. And this could be more so from, you know, a stronger second death penalty sentence. The message you can send to everyone is we should treat each other a little bit better. Absolutely, Amit. We need to treat each other better. And without getting too political, I'm just glad we have someone in the White House who is, I think everybody can say, objectively more sensitive. Well, and yeah, and I think one of the things you mentioned early on today, Jason, that I think really does bear repeating is this stuff doesn't start to improve until we do grapple with our history of racism as a country against really, quite frankly, everybody's had their moment in the sun and it's not like it stopped, right? But I think, you know, America's history with Asian Americans and, and racism is one that really doesn't get talked about very often. And I think it needs to be. And I think these things don't start to improve until everybody kind of understands the, the, the where we're all coming from on this, right? These things don't happen in a vacuum without, without a history that leads to this point. So, you know, one thing I forgot to ask you earlier, in your experience, you know, working in the state's attorney's office, did you ever see a church put out a statement on behalf of a, I guess, defendant? Like that to me seems rare especially when the defense is you know i was having too much sex <laughs> um i've never seen that but what what i what i think of when i think of i guess i think of you know i i think of what happened in what was it north carolina or south carolina i'm already i know it was an african-american methodist uh, episcopalian church the one where it was a dylan root was the name of the defendant oh yeah Terrible. that was south yeah. carolina i think south carolina you know yeah. Well, I, in that case, the church, which was the victim, released a statement saying, we forgive him. So that type of love that the victims, or the families of the victims, too, showed to Dylan, Dylan Root is just, is remarkable. And, you know, Max, going back to your comment real quick, how you said we have this legacy. I, I tell a lot of potential clients, too, and, and I try to be as sensitive as possible. But, you know, sometimes, and I think we've all had it, we all, we all get potential clients that call us up and they are just hard headed. They're like, I know 100% that my employer discriminated against me. And I try to be sympathetic and I say, I believe you. I honestly do. But I, I don't think I can take your case on contingency. I think we're going to lose. Here's why. And sometimes I do have to mention, well, look, our employment laws, in general, laws are, are a floor, not a ceiling. They're a floor for how we need to treat each other, you know, the bare minimum. And our laws, our employment laws and, and labor laws are, are an outgrowth of our nation's history with, slaves, with slavery. You know, it used to be that for hundreds of years, if you were white land, landowning, well, if you were a white landowner, you didn't have to pay your, you didn't have to pay the people that you enslaved. And 
and who who changes the laws? Who makes the laws? It is it is older white men. You know, Lyndon Johnson, great man in some ways, very complicated. He's the guy who passed or, or signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Very complicated racist history. Texas Southern guy, and you know, and it's still it's still a floor. These laws are a floor. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a floor. So. What that means is the law treats the employee and the employer as equals, as uh, both legal people who have both have, have a right to tell their side of the story. And because the potential client is the plaintiff, it's their burden to prove their case. So if the evidence is 50-50, and a lot of times it is, a lot of times the only evidence our clients have are, are their own testimony. And all they, so they'll say, this is what happened to me. And then the employer through their HR supervisor or their boss will say, no, that didn't happen. So it's 50-50, it's he said. And it's sometimes it's even worse because of course, our plaintiffs, our clients are individuals. The employer has, they've got several people all, all, all vouching for the employer side of the story. And what makes it even worse, what, what is so crushing sometimes to, to my clients and, and, I, and we only really realize this after a year of litigation is a lot of my clients think that they had friends in their workplace and they think that those people will testify to the truth but once that subpoena gets served upon their old coworkers, who you know maybe every friday they, they went and did happy hour together they would go to the mall and walk around what they they even know each other's children when it comes time to actually testify and that coworker is still employed and it's their job on the line if they testify to the truth that yes the plaintiff was discriminated against. Yes, this stuff did happen to her. Well, suddenly that witness is going to get cold feet. They're going to realize their job is on the line. That's, there's potential for retaliation against them. So proving these cases is just very hard. And I wish we had better laws. When I think one thing people don't recognize is the employment laws really are generally fairly narrow. Like what you alluded to earlier, in most situations, you can be separated for any non-discriminatory reason, and being a Packers fan isn't really discriminatory. And then the remedies also need a significant amount of improvement. Like wage theft is definitely a thing that's kind of easy to do because a company with deeper pockets can make it hard for someone to recover their unpaid wages. One thing I wanted to touch upon that you just mentioned is, you know, the testimonial aspect of these cases. Not only I think is it tough sometimes to get a coworker to say something negative about the person who's paying them. A lot of times those memories fade. I mean, this is a pretty long process. You may have a situation where a separation occurs in 2014 and you're not having deposition testimony until 2019. Absolutely. I think that one of my favorites, my, one of my favorite plaintiff's lawyers has the saying that time is not your friend. If you are on the plaintiff's side, time is never your friend. Evidence fades. Documents go missing. As you said, witnesses' memories fade. It's it's very, you know, we are in the business of proving the truth. I would never take on a client, definitely not in contingency, if I don't believe in their truth. And how do we prove the truth? This is something I tell I tell potential clients too, is we don't have time machines. We just can't go back to that exact date and time and location. We're not God. We can't witness and see, yes, this, you know, the boss, he, he definitely harbored that discriminatory intent against you. All we have are documents and testimony, and sometimes we don't even have that. And I think, at least from my perspective, what I often find so challenging about these cases, and Amit and I talked about this a little bit in our first episode, is that there's a lot of gray area, and a lot of things can be true all at once, right? Like a boss can treat somebody in a way that I think 
cooler heads, you know, in a vacuum would be able to take a step back and go, well, that was pretty discriminatory. You, you probably wouldn't have treated a white or a white male or, or some other group that way. But also the documents are not going to cut in your favor, right? And so when you say it goes 50-50, you know, we, we're bound by these court decisions that we have to follow that interpret these laws. And we've all come across a litany of decisions where it's like, yeah, the boss made these racist remarks. And yeah, maybe it was a little racially motivated, but also there's this other evidence, you know, so clearly they were thinking something else. And so it's, it's, it's so hard to prove that it was the reason that something bad happened was this racist motivation when the paperwork is going to say something objectively different, right? And even though if it's 50-50, it should get you past, you know, what we as attorneys are always striving on the plaintiff side to get through, which is summary judgment, basically stopping you at halftime before you get all the way to the fourth quarter. You know, we all read decisions where judges sort of, rather than splitting the baby or throwing their hands up and saying, well, it's 50-50, they'll trust the documents that the employer puts forward, or they'll trust, you know, eight people against one in terms of testimony, just because it, it certainly seems to add up that way, right? You have enough people saying one thing and it just... Absolutely, Max. Uh, I didn't want to go there because that's just adding another. I mean, I tell people employment law is not intuitive, and you know, I, I don't even bring up, I don't even bring up summary judgment until they're my client. And I say, <laughs> Look, we got there's this thing, there's this monster we got, this mountain we got to get past. And boy, depending on the law you're looking at, depending on what type of employee, like for example, federal employees have different, well, you're talking about our causal standards, you know, there's right. motivating factors, there's but for, there's even sole cause. It gets very, it becomes very philosophical. This, this intellectual exercise of trying to convince a judge that yes, there might be other reasons for why the employer terminated my client, but they were also motivated by the protected class, but sometimes you're under, there is even under the sole cause standard, which I believe, is, uh, which I've only come across, I think uh, with some federal, federal employee causes of action, federal employee claims. I mean, that is where, where if the employer says, well, yeah, like, you know, maybe, maybe uh, 60% of the reason we terminated this guy is because he's disabled, but 40% is because he's a Bears fan. We're all Packers fans. I mean, then it's, <laughs> right. that's, it's, a, it's an impossibility practically. So yes, very difficult. Well, and then think, think, think about, I'm sorry, but think about some of the defenses that we are, that do actually exist in our circuit that we have to overcome, right? Like the equal opportunity harasser where it's like, yes, you, my client said something super racist to your client, but he's super racist to everybody, white people included. Like, so it couldn't possibly have been that because, you know, or like, how does every deposition start off? They show you the demographic breakdown of the company and go, look, look at all the minority people we have working here. We couldn't possibly be racist. And it's like, yeah, but what does that have to do with how you treated this one person? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. If there's so many complexities to it. We can go on all day. Likely too. If you have the situation where you have a text message or a Facebook post, that's not great. That case probably is going to resolve before summary judgment. So <laughs> We're really talking about, you know, the cases where it is more of a coin flip and it's not as much direct evidence. Yes. And in case anybody's curious out there, summary judgment is it's where the judge has to put themselves in the mind of a reasonable juror. This is what they say. And <laughs> looking at the evidence that's been and usually summary judgment comes at the end of discovery. So depositions have been taken. Both sides have traded <clears throat> traded documents or any other evidence, like if there's video or audio recordings. And it's almost always the defendant that 
submits this motion for summary judgment. The judge says, okay, in the light most favorable to the non-movement, which is the person who didn't submit the motion, which is usually, you know, our clients, the plaintiffs, can a reasonable juror still basically come to the conclusion that what the plaintiff claims happened did happen? And, you know, these judges, yeah, there's, there's case law in the Seventh Circuit, which we're in, I believe Richard Posner had cited I don't know if he created it, but the things, you know, if the N word has been used, oh, it's only been used a couple of times. What is that like? The equivalent of harmless error. There's all these doctrines that they've created that really just seem to favor the defendants. And maybe that is a result of having not that much diversity on the court. I don't know what else. I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> so Jason, taking all that into account, why why do you do this? I mean, what what led you down this path, knowing all, everything we just said about how hard this is? What gives? <laughs> for me, I mean, you guys had mentioned I, I was a photojournalist for a little while at the Sun Times, and it was it was an amazing experience. It's the best education I ever got. I I grew up in the North suburbs in a pretty affluent suburb. And when I worked for the Sun-Times, they had me cover the South suburbs and the South side. So I got to see, I got to see suburbs like Country Club Hills, suburbs like Ford Heights and neighborhoods from like Englewood down to Beverly, Mount Greenwood. And I, I got to see the segregation that really does exist in Chicago. I got to see how other people live. It opened my eyes that people are really suffering. There is a lot of oppression. And then I had a couple of near-death experiences in my life. And it kind of, I would say in my 30s, I'm just going to put it out there, I, I got religion. I, I became a Christian, and it was during law school that I became a Christian. And I, I, I went to law school just because I didn't know what else to do. I just looked at it as an advanced liberal arts degree. And I always liked school. I, I liked uh, the college I went to, which was a liberal arts university. So I just figured, well, you know, I, can, I can do this for three years and hold off reality, hold off getting a job for a while, and then I'll figure something out. I don't know. But, you know, having read texts, and, and I think every mainstream religion says that it is the responsibility of, of the powerful. Well, it's the responsibility of society to look after the oppressed, to look after the widows, to look after the poor. You know, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Well, not just the book of Judges, but there's so much scripture, whether you're looking at the Quran, the Old Testament, New Testament, where we are supposed to, especially if you're a judge, you're supposed to look out for the oppressed. So I became a plaintiff side. Well, I became a plaintiff side employment attorney because because it is a David versus Goliath fight. I like representing the Davids. I like trying to take down the Goliaths. And even if I lose, it's not that big of a deal. Just the fight itself is, is for me, uh, a calling. So that's why I do what I do. Well, it, it sounds like you're going to be running for judge soon, too. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know about that. I think, I know for Cook County, you have to have at least 15 years of experience. And I'm not even, I think I might be, well, I'm not, I guess I'm not halfway there. I, I don't know about that, but I do like fighting on behalf of the plaintiffs. And, and I'll say this too, it, it's a, I mentioned it's an intellectual exercise. I, I enjoy the intellectual rigor. I like trying to prove the truth in whatever way we can to, to 12 people who supposedly don't have a dog in the fight or shouldn't at least. And I just think it's fascinating. It's fascinating to be in litigation, to be like a, like a, an Abraham Lincoln type of attorney. It's one of the privileges Amit and I have had so far, and we've only had it with about four or five people, but is to hear what has motivated everybody to get into employment law. And I have yet to hear anybody say, 
I guess you'd have to be on the other side to hear this. I have yet to have anybody say I've done it for the money. You know, everybody we've had so far come talk has said, you know, because I think it's the right thing to do or because I had this life experience that drove me down this path. And every single one of them has been inspiring for a very different reason. And I, I think we can say safely, Jason, yours is equally inspiring for those reasons. So that's, it's, uh, we're getting the privilege of, of learning why we have such good colleagues in this bar. Definitely don't do it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> Amit, your favorite segment. You we do have one more thing for you. So we do a shout out of the week. It can be a book. It can be a TV show. It can be a person. It can be anything, but it's just something you want to say something positive about. And I think right now, given everything else that's going on in the world, we need a little bit more positivity. Animals are cool too. Sports yeah. teams, whatever. I mean, literally anything. Yeah, it could just be Alabama. <laughs> Do not say roll tide or we're deleting Don't say, this I was, I was tempted to say roll tide for a second. You know, I've never been to Alabama, but I hear it's a beautiful state. Yeah. Think, it, can be, uh, it can be your cat making it through surgery, Jason, seriously. <laughs> so far, what we've had, we've had a book. We've had... A child. A child. So it's, it's broad. I will say, all right, Max, I, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I'll take your idea. Okay. Yes. What really, what, okay. Did you say something that you're thankful for? Or great. What was the word? No, used? shout out of the week. Shout out, so, shout out of the week. Okay. One example is I thought it was cool. So Jeremy Lin came out with his statement about what was going on and he did a really good job of not trying to out the player who had, you know, said basically a racist remark. And then Steve Kerr then tweeted about it. And then Steph Curry tweeted about it. And so I thought that was great. So that would be my shout out of the week would be the combination of all three of those individuals. Guys, thank you for asking. My shout out of the week is going to be Stacey Abrams because listen, future governor of Georgia, if she, if she so chooses, and I hope she gets to even you know, higher office, is fighting the good fight of going to get, you know, so many, I don't want this to be political, but so many Republicans are are getting on the bandwagon of restricting voters' rights. And it's, they've said the quiet part loud. If we allow more people to vote, we're going to keep losing. And so this strategy of restricting voters' rights so that they can continue to hold power, it's, I, just, I just think it's fundamentally wrong. And so shout out to Stacey Abrams for fighting against that, for doing her part. She's an amazing woman, and I, I respect and admire her so much. I love Stacey Abrams. One of my actual favorite things about her, though, is she, I believe, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but if I'm wrong, I'm not gonna, I don't care. I think she writes romance novels. Yeah, she has a Noam Kasum. Yeah, <laughs> I hear they're pretty, uh, they're pretty saucy. <laughs> yeah, but no, she's great. Anything, anything else to plug? Shout out to Oxfam America. Oxfam America is a charity that is doing a lot with refugee crises. You know, not just in, in the, the southern border, but in places like, like in Burma or Myanmar with the Rohingya people. They're providing tents, clean water. It's a charity that I try to support as much as I can. So Oxfam America, doing great work. Jason, if anybody wants to find you to talk, out, talk to you more about your practice, your work for the Korean American Bar Association, really anything else, how would they find you? They can go to my website. It is jasonhanlaw.com. That's my first name, my last name, and then L-A-W, so J-A-S-O-N-H-A-N-L-A-W.com. That's, you can find contact information, submit an email to me if you have any questions. And as for the Korean American Bar Association of Chicago, they can go to Kaba Chicago, K-A-B-A-C-H-I-C-A-G-O, kabachicago.com. 
Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I think this was a really important discussion and we really appreciate you pitching the idea to Amit and I and then agreeing to come on and talk to us about it. So thank you again. You're welcome, guys. Thank you guys for what you're doing. Shout out to you. This cannot be it's no small amount of work and I'm just impressed that you guys are taking this on. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Jason for coming on. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.